Emergency. 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 Terrorism, law, and democracy. Emergency. Emergency. Terrorism and the rule of law. The international and Canadian reactions to the terrorist crimes of September 11th, 2001. Long-term memory radio. Part 9. The effects of September 11th on the Canadian community. Welcome to Terrorism, Law and Democracy, examining the effects of September 11th on the rule of law and the principles of fundamental justice. My name is Khalid M. Safar, and this is Part 9, Considering the Effects of September 11th on Canada's Sense of Community. In this episode, we consider the racial and ethnic schisms introduced by the War on Terrorism here in Canada. During the conference Terrorism, Law and Democracy, held here in Montreal last March, a community forum was held to consider the impact of September 11th on Canada's ethnic communities. We present perspectives by Saliha Bahij, a Montreal psychologist, Dr. Rud Hamrabati Cheran from the Centre for Refugee Studies, and Dr. Emerson Douillon from the clinic René Lanné. We'd like to thank the CIAJ, the Canadian Institute for the Administration of Justice, for their facilitation of these presentations. You can visit their website for more information about the Canadian Institute for the Administration of Justice at www.ciaj-icaj.ca. Part two of this series presented a historical consideration of how Canada has responded to national security crises in the past. The precedents established by the management of terrorist threats has involved over-inclusive targeting of ethnic, religious, and political communities. During these crises, we have rationed freedom, based undue process on racial prejudice, and proved once again that our true uniting national ideology is peace, order, and good government. The present devolution of fundamental justice produced by Canada's new laws in pursuit of its anti-terrorism strategy and produced by the unprecedented combination of internationally imposed anti-terrorism obligations and the imperial aspiration of Bush's doctrine of American internationalism strikes at the very heart of human rights and the treatment of citizenship, immigration, and refuge. Amina Shirazi is a Toronto-based immigration and refugee lawyer and is counsel for the Canadian Arab Federation. In this episode, we present the second part of an interview we conducted with her concerning the overhaul of immigration law in Canada after 9-11. Dr. Charan is a research associate with the Centre for Refugee Studies at York University in Toronto. From 1984 to 1992, Dr. Sharan was a newspaper editor and senior columnist in Sri Lanka. First of all, you know, I, I have some reservations about using the word ethnic communities 
or even cultural communities because it kind of uh, clearly indicates that there is there is some there is some difference that in the in the larger mainstream this uh, quote unquote ethnic community stand as a drop of oil in a glass of water and that is why we need to have this kind of uh, community forum instead of getting this organically involved in the entire entire process having said that I would also like to caution you that I am not representing the Tamil community, even though I am, uh, I am from Sri Lanka, northern Sri Lanka, and I am a Tamil myself, and I am not representing the Sri Lankan Tamil community simply because the community is not monolithic. There are divergent views, there are a range of opinions, and there are a range of views. And what I'm going to tell you is that one particular perspective, and that is my own perspective, and there, there can be hundreds and hundreds of perspectives. And this is a perspective which lacks in the larger mainstream coverage of so-called ethnic communities in, the, in this part of the world. And secondly, in the discourse of terrorism and national security, there are two important but divergent perspectives and viewpoints. And the first perspective, as eloquently expressed by some of the speakers this morning, emphasizes the vital importance of security regardless of the consequence for freedom and rights. This particular perspective, as sir, a United States official recently put it at the United Nations Human Rights Commission, this week, the ills of the world cannot be used to justify terrorism or support for terrorist organizations. In this particular perspective, for them, terrorism, quote unquote terrorism, is a phenomenon that has no social, historical, or political context. But there is also another perspective which I also share. And that particular perspective emphasizes that respect for human rights, minority rights, democracy, and social justice contributes to global stability and prevent acts of terrorism. This is a viewpoint shared by the United Nations Commissioner, High Commissioner for Refugees, and the United Nations Commissioner for Human Rights, and most of the European Union nations. <clears throat> and this is the perspective that deepens the notions of security and proposes the notion of human security as opposed to security per se. And this particular human security for all the citizens of the world over, regardless of ethnicity, race, gender, location, etc., etc. In the aftermath of September 11th, the anti-terrorism legislations and the paranoia that characterized the post 9-11 North America, it has generated a chill on refugees, immigrants, and what I would call racialized communities across North America. And I am not using the word minority or minorities in this context because Certainly in Toronto, where I come from, quote-unquote ethnic minorities are not minorities anymore. If 
if you would like to go and you can read for the, the statistics from the recent, uh, the recent census data. Most of the refugee communities have been subjected to what I call double victimhood. This is the whole idea which I would like to introduce, the notion of double victimhood. The reasons for them to leave their home, homeland or home countries, or they are rooted in massive human rights violations, genocide, civil conflicts, and oppressive and tyrannic governments. All these communities are familiar with the axis of evil, the axis of evil, and that is prevention of terrorism acts or anti-terrorism legislations, emergency regulations, and national security. These are the, what, these are the three aspects, these are the, this is the axis, what I would call the axis of evil. And now I would like to refer to a very specific example, the case of uh, the Sri Lankan Tamil, since I am from that particular community. Sri Lanka has been under emergency regulations and prevention of terrorism max since 1979. And it's still under emergency regulations and still under the prevention of terrorism act. In terms of disappearances, Sri Lanka ranks number two, next only after Iraq, in terms of recorded disappearances according to the United Nations Commission of Involuntary Removal of Persons. They don't want to say disappearances. They would prefer to use the euphemism called involuntary removal of persons. It is a country which recently used what in military parlance they call thermobaric bombs or fuel air bombs. When, it, when this kind of bombs were used in Chechnya, it was the United States which protested and saying that particular kind of bombs was a weapon of mass destruction. And now, in Afghanistan, the United States has used this particular kind of bombs, which is, which is in a sense, you know, weapon of mass destruction. But Sri Lanka has been using it, and there wasn't any questions or, you know, criticism from any part of the so-called Western democracy. And the second, one third, of the, one third of this Tamil population has become refugees. 200, more than 200,000 of them live in, live in Toronto, live in, live in Canada, and the rest live in various parts of the Western democracies. And there were main reason for this large scale refugee phenomenon is simply the basic violation of basic human rights and minority rights. It has nothing to do with terrorism because quote unquote terrorism in Sri Lanka emerged only in the late 70s and the problem of the minority rights has started way back in 1948. So a population that, that has gone through this severe trauma, agony, pain, disappearances, an extrajudicial killing under the Prevention of Terrorism Act and emergency regulations, they come to a country and expect refuge, expect the rule of law. But what happens in the process is a bit difficult. And I would, I would like to talk 
a little bit about the Canadian experience. I think the Canadian experience of war crime prosecution is instructive and has some lessons for all of us. Even with the amendments to the criminal code two years ago to address some of the hurdles that the Canadian government faced in the prosecution of alleged war criminals, the government preferred to use the Immigration Act and deportation proceedings to deport war criminals elsewhere. This has not contributed to anti-impunity. So when we look at the new anti-terrorism act, we should not be surprised that no preventive detentions have taken place. And I predict there will be a lot. What will happen instead is that law enforcement agencies will take full advantage of expanded surveillance powers and search warrants to gather information that will be taken then used to subject sub suspects to immigration detention and then to deport them, the so-called terrorists, so-called criminals, the so-called troublemakers, etc., etc. The immigration hearings have none of the due process safeguards of the criminal justice system. In addition, it deserves mention that in the new Immigration and Refugee Protection Act that was passed swiftly this fall in the aftermath of September 11th, non-citizens in Canada will no longer have recourse to the Security and Intelligence Review Committee, where the basis of CISIS claims against them would have formally been tested. Now, all non-citizens, regardless of the length of time they have been in Canada, face the prospects of security proceedings in an expedish federal court hearing in which they have almost no access to the case against them and no, no process. And they will be sent back to countries like Sri Lanka, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, in all kinds of countries where torture and human rights violations have been recorded in large numbers. And that will be very problematic. And this is, this is, this is, a, this is one of the major concerns for me. And the other point is that in the aftermath of 9-11 and the emergence of this national security regime in North America, it basically erodes the fundamental idea, our fundamental ideas about human rights and fundamental rights. And this basically gives right to some form of social control because social control is easily, could be easily manipulated in the name of national security. And once we embark on the process of social control using various kinds of national security procedures, it is going to be very difficult to go back. As far as our experience is concerned, and if we, if we would like to take the examples of South Africa, Sri Lanka, and various, various other countries in the various parts of the world which have embarked on this kind of national security process and national security regime, or the terrorism and national security discourse, once we embark upon them, there will be no turning back. And that scenario is really horrible. And this is really, really scary. And I would argue the, the terrorism and national security discourse is somehow incomparable 
with a human rights and fundamental rights discourse. And I don't think we can somehow manage to compromise or somehow manage to find a balance between the discourses of national security and terrorism on the one hand and the human rights and fundamental rights on the other hand. It's, they are basically incompatible. And this incompatibility comes simply because this one particular form of understanding mm -hmm. na uh, national security and terrorism simply treats both issues as some kind of rooted, un unrooted, you know, a, a phenomena that simply comes from afar. It has, it has no roots in either social, historical, or political context. And that is one of the fundamental problems there. And my final comment would be <coughs> to, to remind you that it's, there, are, there are so many different communities which have gone through this, this, this process and this kind of uh, tragic experiences back home. And now they are here, and they are in exile, and they are, they are, they are, they are seeking ref refuge. And the social control mechanisms and national security measures, it simply undermine the whole notion of refuge. And that is going to have great implication for entire humanity. Thank you. <laughs>
Pour cet acquis, ils ont accepté de payer le prix de l'exil. Relevant les défis suite à plusieurs deuils, famille, amitié et carrière, ils se consolent dans ce que le Canada leur offre à eux et à leurs enfants, c'est-à-dire la justice. À côté de l'option pour une meilleure vie, le terrorisme et l'insécurité des guerres civiles font partie des raisons qui ont poussé les membres de ces communautés à fuir leur pays d'origine, vivant parfois des événements traumatisants tout au long de leur processus migratoire et des difficultés d'intégration dans le pays d'accueil. Beaucoup de ces familles ont connu la terreur et parfois la torture psychologique, beaucoup plus grave que la physique, par les séquelles qu'elles laissent. Je veux dire qu'avant le 11 septembre 2001, tous les jours et à chaque fois que c'est possible, ces communautés dénonce le terrorisme qui continue à faire des morts, dénonce les raisons du terrorisme qui sont avant tout injustice, pauvreté, politique, avant de parler de fanatisme ou de religion. Et c'est si normal d'avoir recours à la religion quand les portes de la justice sont fermées et que celles du désespoir sont ouvertes. Reconnaître une seule autorité, l'autorité divine, et s'en remettre à elle. Bien avant le 11 septembre 2001, lorsque je demandais aux participants de faire une association de mots et de dire sans retenue tous les mots qui leur viennent lorsqu'ils entendent le mot arabe, à 90% ils répondent avant tout « terroristes » musulmans, suivis d'autres mots négatifs tels que « violent »,« batteur de femmes »,« marchand »,« chameau »,« désert »,« harem »,« jamais sans ma fille », etc. La, la majorité explique, explique que c'est à travers un film, d'autres une lecture qu'ils ont acquis cette perception. Si je fais cette introduction, c'est pour vous expliquer l'intérêt que je parte à l'impact du 11 septembre sur ces communautés qui ont été bouleversées. Bouleversées par toutes ces images d'horreur qui révoltent parce qu'elles sont l'œuvre d'êtres humains. Par ces images qui sont venues réveiller au fond de ceux qui ont connu d'autres horreurs qu'ils croyaient à jamais enfouies. La crainte d'être rattrapés parce qu'ils ont fui, la peur de confronter de nouveau une atmosphère d'insécurité, eux qui, pensaient, qui se pensaient définitivement à l'abri. L'effet du choc, comme tout le monde, est là, mais il est encore plus amplifié pour ces communautés à partir du moment où ils apprennent que les auteurs de ces actes sont des terroristes, des terroristes arabes et musulmans. Sur le coup, les communautés arabes vivant au Canada ne se sont pas senties concernées. Mais plus les jours s'écoulaient et les réactions se dessinaient à travers les médias et sur la scène internationale et surtout canadienne, plus ils réalisaient l'ampleur de l'impact qu'a cet événement sur eux. Quelques organismes se livrent actuellement à dresser le portrait de ces impacts dans voici quelques-uns que j'ai relevé le jour de la journée de réflexion sur le terrorisme, racisme et liberté civile qui a eu lieu le 19, euh, le 19 mars passé et qui est organisé par la Ligue des droits et libertés à Montréal. Alors j'essaye un petit peu de, de, de nommer ça. Augmentation du sentiment d'insécurité pour soi et pour sa famille à court et à moyen terme. Ravivement de traumatismes, dépression, anxiété, autocensure. Les gens ne se plaignent pas. Peur d'être stigmatisés. Exclusion, marginalisation des Arabes musulmans qui sont sommés de choisir un, un camp, le mal ou le bien. Exigence accrue par les demandeurs d'asile d'origine arabe, campagne de salissage, racisme latent mais qui se réactualise, prise de parole par les prêcheurs de haine, gestes de discrimination, harcèlement, discrimination en emploi, conséquence, garder le silence par peur d'envenimer les choses, prise de parole qui se fait discrète, minorité raciste et haineuse, tendance à minimiser les actions, silence généralisé des uns et des autres, 
peut cautionner les injustices et l'inégalité. Constat que les services de placement ont baissé le recrutement des personnes arabes, racisme interethnique, injures à la radio, harcèlement à l'école, cocktail Molotov contre la mosquée de boulevard Saint-Laurent, menace de mort à la fédération canado-palestinienne. Rapport de police qui indique 66% de crimes haineux à l'égard des musulmans de Toronto. Enquête de sécurité très longue et cela retarde le processus d'immigration des réunifications des familles séparées, conséquences psychologiques et sociales de telles situations. Cas d'un Algérien qui s'est fait refuser la citoyenneté canadienne, le juge ayant considéré qu'il n'était pas prêt. Les répondants pour l'établissement de passeport sont appelés par, par les fonctionnaires pour le, leur demander des détails et tenter de les intimider. Pour les Arabes musulmans, les femmes voilées et les hommes portant la barbe se sentent visés. Passeport avec un nom arabe, Contrôle plus serré au, au, au pays, au point d'entrée au pays. Les visiteurs arabes en vacances ici, questionnement incessant. État civil, cas de changement de nom à consonance arabe. Les Al, les El, et les Omar et les Oussama et les Mohamed. Cas d'un immigrant maghrébin qui trouve un emploi dans la vente de produits informatiques. Le client lui demande, ton nom est arabe, je vais parler avec mes partenaires qui ne veulent pas avoir à faire à la compagnie. L'employeur le met à la, part, à la porte. Voici aussi celle que j'ai rencontrée moi-même dans ma pratique de psychologue depuis le 11 septembre. La croissance de cas de détresse psychologique de certaines personnes qui m'ont appelé suite aux événements pour consulter. Dépression, crainte par rapport à l'avenir de leurs enfants, par rapport à leurs pratiques religieuses, les prénoms qu'ils portent, sont-ils un, un obstacle à l'ouverture de certains secteurs ou de lieux privilégiés d'emploi pour leurs enfants Conflit dans le couple, le mari qui veut que sa femme enlève le voile, de peur de s'attirer de peur de s'attirer des ennuis, s'est mis à consommer, pote et à prendre des boissons alcoolisées. Il se fait appeler Joseph, lui qui s'appelle Youssef. Perte d'emploi d'une jeune fille qui porte le voile, une famille qui a décidé de rentrer dans son pays d'origine, une femme qui a été agressée physiquement en sortant d'un magasin alimentaire Alal, convocation d'un stagiaire par son superviseur pour lui annoncer qu'il serait difficile pour lui de travailler en équipe. J'ai eu aussi deux cas de revendicateurs de refuge qui m'ont été euh, qui m'ont été euh, référés par le RIVO, qui est le réseau d'intervention auprès des victimes de violences organisées, et que je suis. Leur état de santé mentale s'est détérioré suite à, à l'événement du 11 septembre, avec exacerbation des symptômes du syndrome post et dépression. Ils vivent dans la crainte de revivre le même cauchemar. Emprisonnement, accusation injuste, peur d'être encore une fois victime d'un abus d'un pouvoir. État dépressif d'un autre cas de séparation familiale. La tante du mari restée dans le pays d'origine risque d'être plus longue que prévu. Lenteur administrative habituelle, plus son âge, son sexe et le fait qu'il vienne d'un pays d'origine qui est musulman. Donc, enquête de sécurité plus longue depuis le 11 septembre. Un autre cas de dépression majeure avec, un, avec idée suicidaire qui est sous médication, euh, fortement dosée et qui, euh, que je suis en, en suivi psychologique. Il disait, ce, je, je reprends le, bien sûr en respectant la confidentialité de ce jeune homme, on disait avant qu'au fond de chaque arabe dort un pacha. Aujourd'hui, il pense qu'au fond de chaque arabe dort un terroriste. Profil pour être suspect, me dit-il, arrêté ou embarqué. Être un homme jeune, brun de surcroît, provenant d'un pays arabe, musulman et surtout portant un prénom qui sonne terroriste. Et c'est parti, me dit ce jeune Algérien qui, persécuté, a fui son pays en laissant trois enfants 
en bas âge. Il se sent si coupable de sauver sa vie et celle de sa femme que l'idée du suicide s'est installée dans sa tête comme solution à sa terrible souffrance. Je suis moi-même terrorisée, mais à cause de mon nom et de la tête que j'ai, je suis peut-être vue comme un terroriste potentiel depuis cette affaire du 11 septembre et je ne supporte même pas cette idée insensée et ridicule. Je n'ai même pas la force de me défendre. Ainsi, pour ne nommer que ces trois derniers cas qui, en tant que demandeurs de refuge, se sentent l'objet de suspicion et d'hostilité et donc particulièrement vénérables, ils espèrent que les nouvelles procédures d'inspiration sécuritaire respectent les principes de protection des réfugiés de la Convention de Genève qui a été rédigée de façon à exclure toute personne coupable de crimes. Ils se disent victimes et non auteurs de ces actes terroristes. Les rumeurs qui circulent ne les sécurisent point puisqu'ils disent que le pourcentage d'acceptation de certains réfugiés arabes et musulmans a baissé parce que la commission se base sur les clauses beaucoup plus d'exclusion plutôt que d'inclusion qui sont prévues par la convention. Un autre cas dont le statut de réfugié a été refusé. Il est encore là à cause du moratoire et bien qu'ayant un travail stable et une vie paisible et sans problème, il vit dans la crainte d'être expulsé, ce qui alimente sa détresse psychologique. Il est actuellement sous antidépresseur. Conclusion, il serait utile pour contrer ces effets qui iraient à l'encontre du respect de la dignité humaine de maintenir le dialogue mutuel constant qui autrement risque de gruger les efforts pour harmoniser les relations entre tous les citoyens. Construire une citoyenneté commune au Canada, dans le Québec, à partir d'héritages différents et multiples, est une entreprise indispensable. En faire connaissance est à la fois s'ouvrir à l'autre et apprendre un peu sur soi-même. Enfin, de présenter un portrait qui rend justice à ses communautés, prévenir des contentieux, préjudiciables et maintenir le dialogue pour se connaître davantage, nous recommandons d'eux. Éduquer et sensibiliser le public québécois et canadien aux réalités culturelles, sociales et économiques des communautés arabes. Institutionnaliser le savoir de ces communautés communi et substituer la connaissance à la propagande, pénaliser les crimes haineux, intervenir auprès des membres de, la, de ces communautés en leur permettant de s'affirmer et de dénoncer tout, tout acte qui porte qui leur porte préjudice. Et enfin, intervenir surtout, et nous insistons beaucoup sur ça, auprès des jeunes de ces communautés et leur offrir l'aide et le soutien dans leurs particularités culturelles et prévenir ainsi le sentiment de rejet en consolidant le sentiment d'appartenir à, so à une société qui valorise la diversité culturelle et le droit de chaque citoyen, quelles que soient ses origines, sa religion, sa couleur, son nom et son prénom. Psychologist Saliha Bahij presenting a consideration of the effects of 9-11 on Arab communities at the conference Terrorism, Law and Democracy. Dr. Emerson Doyon is a psychologist and criminologist. He discusses ethnic minorities and questions of criminality in the context of September 11th. Bien avant les événements du 11 septembre 2001, il existait aussi bien en Amérique du Nord qu'en Europe une préoccupation obsessionnelle 
au sujet de la sécurité intérieure. Le langage médiatique et les discours des acteurs de la scène politique avaient évolué. On entendait moins parler de la criminalité traditionnelle que de la peur du crime, du sentiment de vulnérabilité et d'insécurité au niveau de la communauté. De nouvelles expressions ont été créées pour la circonstance, telles que la théo... <coughs> pardon, telles que, excusez, les incivilités des marginaux, les quartiers sensibles, les zones de non-droit, la tolérance zéro, la théorie du chaos brisé, la guérilla urbaine, la carte du crime, les exclus de l'itinérance, les gangs de rue, les nouvelles classes dangereuses, les minorités visibles ou les groupes racisés, les veilles de quartier et les patrouilles de rue par des civils, le réveil des nationalismes et des revendications identitaires, les flux migratoires, en provenance, en provenance du tiers-monde ou du quart-monde. Les vagues d'arrestations et d'incarcération socialement et racialement typées. La police civique, la police communautaire, la police de quartier ou de proximité. Le boom de l'incarcération suite à un durcissement et à un élargissement du champ pénal. Voilà la toile de fond d'où se détachaient les événements du 11 septembre et les réactions en chaîne qui ont suivi dans le sens d'un renforcement de l'obsession sécuritaire. Comment en est-on arrivé là et à quoi d'autre fallait-il s'attendre Tout devenait possible et l'angoisse générale était compréhensible. Cependant, plus le souvenir de ces catastrophes en série s'estompait, plus l'angoisse cédait la place à la peur. La chasse au bouc émissaire ciblait par-delà les individus, les groupes organisés, les communautés d'origine. Suite à la mise en route de lois antiterroristes armées de dents et de nouvelles mesures pour une sécurité bétonnée, n'importe qui pouvait se sentir concerné soit directement, soit indirectement, en vertu des effets pervers éventuels du système mis en place. 
les changements législatifs radicaux et le renforcement des petits pouvoirs, comme celui de la police, n'avaient rien de rassurant. Au Québec, plus particulièrement, confronté aux nombreuses craintes face aux restrictions que le projet de loi C-36 impose aux droits fondamentaux, la Commission des droits de la personne et des droits de la jeunesse alertait l'opinion publique. Le glissement de la catégorie « groupe terroriste » à celle de « groupe ethnoculturel perçu comme dangereux » était facile à imaginer, compte tenu de l'impasse historique dans les rapports entre ces derniers groupes cibles et la police. Les Noirs, de leur côté, regardaient avec appréhension ce renforcement de pouvoir policier. Déjà, ils fuyaient le contact avec la police de proximité. Abolir davantage la distance entre la police et la communauté devenait préoccupant. Comme me disait bien naïvement un représentant policier qui siégeait avec moi sur un comité d'enquête, un noir ordinaire n'a pas d'affaire à avoir peur de la police, à moins qu'il n'ait pas la conscience tranquille. La la suspicion générale appréhendée, voilà le maître mot, à l'origine du malaise ressenti par les minorités culturelles face au déploiement de l'arsenal antiterroriste. Pour mieux décrypter ce malaise, il faudrait remonter aux contentieux chroniques entre forces de l'ordre et minorités visibles. On le réalise de plus en plus. La police, traditionnellement méfiante et sur la défensive, désire troquer son image répressive contre une approche proactive. Mais par sa manière de se rapprocher de la communauté, au point de vouloir mettre cette dernière à son service, la police, derrière son masque préventif, fait peur. Elle arrive difficilement à faire oublier que sa vigilance s'est souvent exercée dans le passé à l'égard du différent, du pas pareil, de ce qui se détache du fond. La figure emblématique du criminel, la figure emblématique du crime, le représentant typé de la classe dangereuse, c'était souvent l'immigré fraîchement reçu, le réfugié venu de nulle part et en quête de statut, le non-citoyen qui risque à tout moment de devenir un sujet de non-droit,
Bref, l'étranger, rendu doublement étrange par son ethnicité et par sa pauvreté. Dans la foulée et à l'abri de cet amalgame, les hommes noirs en particulier ont souvent fait les frais d'un profilage ethnique ou racial sous la forme de harcèlement, de délits de faciès ou d'apparence. Il n'est pas étonnant dès lors que le cheminement de ces minorités dans le système de justice et dans l'univers carcéral constitue l'une de ces zones grises qui mérite un dévoilement au nom de la transparence dans nos relations interculturelles. Rappelons que dès 1997, le Canada se situait, juste après les États-Unis, comme le pays qui a le taux d'incarcération le plus élevé en Occident. En 1998, 2 617 380 Canadiens possédaient un casier judiciaire. En 2001, les Autochtones, qui comptent pour 3% de la population, représentent 17% des hommes et 23% des femmes incarcérées. Quant aux Noirs, qui ne représentent que 2% de la population canadienne, ils figurent dans les proportions de 6 à 7% de la population carcérale au fédéral. Les données des prisons provinciales ne sont pas prises en compte. Ces derniers chiffres peuvent paraître modestes à côté des données comparables pour les États-Unis où les Noirs, par exemple, comptent pour 51% de la population carcérale et 40% des cohortes de condamnés à mort, alors qu'ils ne constituent que 13% de la population américaine. Ces cas de figure pointent dans la même direction et révèlent une double tendance. D'une part, en matière d'ordre, de sécurité, de contrôle de la criminalité, le Canada, comme les États-Unis, ne fait pas dans la dentelle. D'autre part, ce sont les minorités ethnoculturelles qui sont le plus lourdement pénalisées en comparaison de leur poids démographique à l'occasion de toute mouvance répressive. Il n'en faut pas plus pour justifier dans un mouvement de balancier un déplacement inversé de la peur à l'angoisse. On revient à la case départ, c'est-à-dire à, à l'émotion du possible. Paradoxalement, ce qu'il convient de craindre désormais, ce n'est pas tant le terrorisme que le contre-terrorisme. 
la menace peut ne pas venir d'où on l'attendait. De fait, selon la presse écrite, avocats et juristes canadiens sont de plus en plus inquiets de l'utilisation depuis le 11 septembre d'une loi autorisant le gouvernement à invoquer la sécurité nationale pour ne dévoiler qu'au seul juge des preuves à charge contre des étrangers menacés d'expulsion. Ces preuves secrètes peuvent en tout ou en partie faire l'objet d'une interdiction d'accès ou de divulgation même à la défense. Certes, aucun événement nouveau ni marquant sur la scène locale n'est venu confirmer l'anticipation des pires scénarios depuis le 11 septembre. Est-ce trop tôt pour annoncer la fin de toutes les peurs La loi C-36, qui touchera bientôt tous les Canadiens, se charge de remettre les pendules à l'heure. Puis cette mise en garde nous servir de balise pour renforcer la vigilance générale et prévenir toute dérive dans les dossiers ethno-culturels. Il ne faut pas que les moyens mis en œuvre pour lutter contre le terrorisme deviennent eux-mêmes une menace d'érosion de nos droits démocratiques et de nos libertés fondamentales. Merci. Dr. Doyon addressing the conference Terrorism, Law and Democracy. Amina Shirazi is legal counsel for the Canadian Arab Federation. She works in immigration and refugee law. I interviewed her about the impact of September 11th on immigration and refugee concerns. There's been a major overhaul of uh, immigration and refugee law in Canada this year. Can you introduce us a little bit to the new Immigration and Refugee Act? Okay. Um, the new Immigration and Refugee Protection Act was uh, passed in June 28th, and there are a couple of positive measures that it uh, contains. However, for the most part, it's become far more restrictive. Um, it's the first wholesale revision of Canada's immigration law in over 20 years, and a critical feature of it is that it applies retroactively, so that all immigration applications that are currently in process will now be applied under the new rules. Um, there are a couple of things that make it uh, more inaccessible to come to Canada, and I'm going to focus on um, particularly refugees and how it's impacting on Arabs and, and Muslims disproportionately. Um, one thing is the whole refugee process. Uh, under the current system, what you have now is 
people can make a refugee claim on more protected grounds. So in addition to the United Nations uh, Convention on Refugees, you can also make a claim if you are someone who is going to be covered by the Convention Against Torture. So that's an uh, additional thing. Because we have the refugee definition, which means that if you're being persecuted by your state and there's no way that you can find protection within your state, then you will meet the definition of refugee under certain grounds. Now, if you're someone who is uh, going to be subject to torture, then you can also claim protection. However, the problem is the definition doesn't include stateless persons who don't meet the convention definition, for example, Palestinians, and who find themselves either in detention or in constant orbit, so they're not being accepted anywhere in any of the countries they go to. Um, the other problem is that some claimants will be barred from making a refugee claim, those who are considered to be a, quote, security risk, and those who have a criminal conviction are not allowed to make a refugee claim. And this is contrary to the position of the UNHCR and is also against the Convention Against Torture because everyone should have a right to make a refugee hearing regardless of um, their, their criminal record. The other problem is that refugee claims can only be made once per lifetime, so you only get one kick of the can, and there's a very limited right of appeal. And um, the problem with this is that most often people come into this country, they make a refugee claim, they're not familiar with the process, they're not familiar with the legal aid system, they don't have the assistance of a lawyer, and so they're not putting forward their best case. In the past, what has happened is that once a deportation order is issued because the person has failed their refugee claim, they go and they get legal attention, and then the lawyer says, wait a second, you mean you had all these other things and you never got a chance to tell the board? Well, let's redo your refugee claim. Now there is no such provision, so you only get one kick at the can. The other problem is that um, the new act allows refoulement to torture, which means that someone who has been declared a refugee can still be sent back to a country where they will be faced with torture or persecution. And this is absolutely inconsistent and contrary to international human rights obligations that, uh, that Canada has. So these are some of the concerns that you know, we've particularly highlighted. But other problems are that you can't um, make a, a refugee claim or you can't even be admitted to come into or remain in Canada if you are from a country that is subject to sanctions unless they can prove to the minister that it wouldn't be contrary to their interests, the national interests of this country. So what this will end up doing is it'll prevent some refugees from countries that are current, currently subject to economic sanctions, um, for example, Iraq. And it's our submission that persons should have a right to claim refugee status and should not be prevented from uh, coming to Canada because their home country is under sanctions, something that they're completely not responsible for and something that they have no control over. So what it's going to end up doing is it's going to end up targeting those people who uh, are most vulnerable from countries of primarily Arab or Muslim origin. There's a, an extreme backlash there has been for, well, it doesn't seem to go away in industrialized northern countries against the waves of immigration uh, from, from various countries. In terms of, of the mood uh, for those practicing immigration and refugee law, trying to help people 
Um, what's what's the new mood like? Has there been a deep change in terms of the client worries and the lawyer worries since September 11th? And then yes, yes, there has been. I mean, those of us who are practicing it are not being properly compensated for it. I'm sure you must know that the Canadian Bar Association has uh, decided to take each province to court for not uh, paying appropriate legal aid. In the case of immigration, sometimes legal aid is not even available. So often, um, a lot of uh, refugees and immigrants who are often in detention, for example, they're being detained. Their very liberty is at risk, you know, and they don't have right to counsel. And so they're going and they're defending themselves or they're dependent on clinics or students to assist them with detention hearings. And that's a big problem because under the current act, you have an expansion of powers in detention that permit detention on the basis of administrative convenience and suspicion, okay, so not before you could only detain someone if you couldn't figure out what their identity were or if you thought that, uh, you know, there might be a risk, uh, a flight risk, they might leave the country or they might leave the, the, the area and not show up for their hearing, but now they can be detained simply on the basis of suspicion and there's an element of racial profiling in what is, uh, you know, suspicious. So a lot of lawyers have to contend with that kind of environment and, um, Challenging legislation is is a really difficult problem when you're trying to serve the direct interest of your client that's in front of you, and you've got to challenge this big provision that has general application. So a lot of lawyers are getting burned out. A lot of lawyers are becoming quite frustrated. A lot of lawyers are changing their practice. A lot of lawyers are refusing to do security certificates because the rules are so unfair and because the the, the decks are so clearly stacked in favor of the government, especially with the secret evidence and secret trial provisions. And uh, it's generally it's very difficult for um, immigration refugee lawyers to, to get any type of support or uh, appropriate compensation. And from the clients, do you see a new fear? Oh, absolutely. Um, the clients are being affected not only in terms of their status in terms of immigration, but I think what's being... Um, What's having the greatest effect is that which is not being reported in the news because it's not under the Anti-Terrorism Act. It's happening on a daily basis in their daily lives. So they're finding that their employers are discriminating against them because of this general climate of fear and suspicion against Arabs and Muslims. Um, children are being uh, harassed or discriminated in schools because they have uh, apparent symbols of uh, of 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 their Muslim identity, um, and they can be clearly targeted. We're finding that uh, people are being constantly detained and racially profiled at airports. Uh, so it's these, you know, really unsexy sort of everyday realities of people that lawyers are seeing because people are wanting to assert their rights or lawyers are not seeing because often people just don't want to bring any more attention to a situation that's already, you know, affected their life in a devastating manner. So there's a lot that we're not actually even uh, seeing that's out there that is affecting Arabs and Muslims on a daily basis. What are some of the background ideas animating these new acts? Who do we really want to let in this country? It's pretty clear at this point who's under suspicion. What's the profile of people that have it easy coming into this country? Well, well, I think the profile is anyone who's got a lot of money. <laughs> you know, because under the new um, era of globalization, it's 
trade and investment and capital that can move without any borders, and it's people and it's labor that's having the hard time doing so. So I think I'd have to say that the law doesn't discriminate when it comes to money, but when it comes to a lot of other factors, they're looking for ways of preventing people from coming in, which is completely contrary to the needs of the country. I mean, StatsCan has recently confirmed in their very, you know, detailed and accurate report that Canada needs immigration and that Canada has always been dependent on on immigrants. Um, So the kind of climate that we're seeing both federally and provincially, especially with the Mike Harris or Eves crowd at Queen's Park, is that uh, as Canadians are getting older, we're, we need more people, we need more children, and we need, uh, particularly because our birth rate is so low, we need uh, immigrants from all sectors of society. And uh, let's admit it, you know, not only in terms of our population and our labor force, but the needs of global capital. We need to have people of all uh, skills and, and lack of skills to, to be here to work. And we don't just need a whole bunch of professionals, but we also need laborers. Otherwise, you will have the system where people come to this country, they will not be permitted to get their status, and there will be a whole class of underground, uh, quote-unquote, illegal immigrants who are here who are not going to get any protection of the laws because they're too afraid of actually asserting themselves, who will form an exploitable class. There are definite economic advantages to making it more difficult for people to move around. I've been looking at that as an example. Can you do you see a mechanism developing there internationally where people are able, countries are able to fulfill their needs by having tighter restrictions and more pressure on those who would want to move? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've always had that system though, where we issue temporary resident permits by way of employment authorizations or or a study or skilled worker permits. And what's interesting is under this new law, it's easy for uh, business visitors to enter because they won't require the same uh, authorizations as uh, workers who will. And so all business visitors to Canada will be processed as visitors who don't require work permits for even if they're like self-employed. And in fact, work permits will only be um, issued for jobs where the wages and working conditions are are sufficient. So what will happen is that it will move marginalized people further into marginalization when Immigration Canada is saying that if you're a business immigrant, you don't need a work permit. You don't need any uh, authorization to come in here. If you are a worker, you need all these authorizations that cost this much money, first of all. And second of all, if you're a worker whose workplace is below our standards, we're not even going to issue you a work permit. So basically, you have no choice but to come here and work illegally, or you can't come here at all. So what we're seeing is that it's very much in line with global capital and the needs of global capital. And the the temporary nature of these permits is definitely something that um, permits Immigration Canada to deport people once they're no longer needed, or for these people to then go underground and not have any uh, authorization or permission to remain here and continue to be a part of the exploitable class. 
I have uh, one, I guess, last question to bring us full circle back to uh, the definitions of te terrorism and uh, facilitation and support for terrorism. And that is to an appreciation of the challenges for immigrant populations and communities coming out of countries that are experiencing one form or another of, of political dissent or civil strife, mm -hmm. and then coming here and finding themselves involved in a community that does transport the networks and needs of, of a home country. What's the challenge for an immigrant who's implicated in the politics of liberation or otherwise back home, suddenly finding him or herself uh, with these community blood affiliations with people who might now be defined as terrorists here? Oh, the in implications are quite severe. And that's exactly the problem that we were trying to articulate to uh, the Senate Committee and the House Committee by saying that you can't uh, throw them all in the same basket or whatever that saying is, throw the baby out with the bathwater because there are legitimate struggles of independence and liberation of people against dictatorships and oppressive regimes that need to be in fact supported as opposed to targeted. And what's going to happen is that because of this, over, this overly broad definition of what constitutes terrorism, what you're going to have is the persecution of people who are actually trying to assist those people overseas who are working against um, injustice and um, oppression. And, and a, a really concrete example of this is, um, you know, Colombia, or let's just take the Palestinian uh, situation. If you're a person who makes a donation to the Red Cross or to the Red Crescent Society, and the Red Crescent Society sets up a hospital in the West Bank, and that hospital treats someone who has been engaged in the intifada and um, gives them medical treatment or treats someone who is a member of the Hezbollah, then all of a sudden you in Canada, as someone who's donating to the Red Crescent Society, have facilitated what has been defined as terrorism now under this new act. And that is a huge problem that we have. So we have. I can't tell you how many calls I've gotten from charities, uh, from nonprofit organizations, for humanitarian relief organizations. I mean, these people have a hard time raising money as it is. And now we've got this legislation that really has scared them into their fund, uh, uh, scared them into immobilization with respect to their fundraising activities. We have to know that this has really negative repercussions. <laughs> Lawyer Amina Shirazi, legal counsel for the Canadian Arab Federation, discussing Canada's overhaul of immigration law and the new Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. This has been part nine the effects of September 11th on Canada's sense of community. From the documentary series Terrorism, Law and Democracy, which explores the theme of terrorism and the rule of law through international and Canadian reactions to the terrorist crimes of September 11th, as well as an examination of the ongoing international campaign against terror. I was Khalid. This has been a long-term memory radio presentation from CKUT 90.3 FM. Join us next time for part 10 political action and globalization in the face of new security measures. Uh, no.